Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Uh, just in way of quick announcements uh, before we dismiss our Sunday school, uh, this is hunting weekend, so you'll see a lot more women here than men, I guess. But that's all right. Uh, we want to pray Brother Rick, uh, Kylie, and Michael, and I think um, Russ Cordell, Brother Russ is out as well. So I don't have anybody supervising me today. Not that it would really matter anyways. But uh, so that's where they're at. We're going to move on. And someone mentioned to me that the Packers play at noon. And they actually said to me that make sure that you, you get done in time for us to get there. That went right in one ear and out the other. But, uh, oh, of course, we'll be done, if God wills, by one. So, Sunday School, if you want to take off this morning, have a great time in your, in your classes. I am I'm really uh, anticipating sharing this morning with you some things that are on my heart and after the song service and after what we've been feeling, I, I feel greatly encouraged that, that God has given me some things to share with you. Um, someone once told me, I think it was one of our, our teachers at college, that she, he said, the definition of preaching is the deliverance of God's word through personality. And just like every one of us has our own distinct personality, each one of us delivers the message differently, but it's the same message. So I, I can't apologize for my, my deliverance because that's just my personality. So we'll be laughing a little bit this morning and maybe a, quite a bit more serious than we might be normally as well. But I have to tell you a story. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about fear. And um, the story's told about a psychiatrist that was flying to Chicago to attend a conference. <clears throat> and as was typical, when he struck up a conversation with his seatmate, the, the talk turned to his neighbor's fear of flying. He said his phobia began several years before all the security measures were installed in the airports. And a man had taken a bomb on board his flight to Denver to kill his mother-in-law. He said, ever since then, until recently, I couldn't get it out of my mind that someone on board my flight was carrying a bomb. Well, the psychiatrist was intrigued and asked, well, what do you do to relieve your fear? Well, the man replied, well, I, I want to... To, I went to one of those special schools for people who are afraid of flying, and they told me that there was only one chance in 10,000 that someone would be on board my flight with a bomb. Well, that didn't make me feel much better. The odds were still too close. 
But then I reasoned that if there was only one chance in 10,000 that one bomb would be on the plane, then there was only one chance in 100 million that two bombs would be on board. And I could live with those odds. The psychiatrist was silent for a moment while he tried to figure out this man's reasoning. Then he said, what good would that do you? The man replied, every since then I carry one bomb on board myself just to improve the odds. <laughs> Fear is not logical. Fear is irrational. It's impulsive. It does things without thinking. And this morning I'm going to be reading from Numbers, the 13th chapter, and I'm going to be reading from verse 32 to 38. I, I want you to know when we go back to this portion of Scripture that Israel, when God gave them a promise, promise of deliverance from bondage, a promise of a land of milk and honey that was flowing with milk and honey, a place of, of blessing, that the trip wasn't as direct as everyone thought it would be. They, they left Egypt, and they went into the wilderness, and they started to meet obstacles. And each obstacle brought with it an element of fear. For example, they hadn't even cleared the suburbs of Egypt when they came to the Red Sea. And fear met them. Fear stopped them because there was no way that they were going to get across that sea. So God came down and sent the wind and he split the sea and they walked through the sea on dry ground. Well, that was great. And they got their tambourines and they danced and rejoiced. They had a great service. Everybody was rejoicing on the other side of the Red Sea. But then they began to realize that they had a couple million, almost a million and a half or two million people, and there was no water in the desert. And it would take a whole railroad train to feed that many people if they brought goods every day. And they thought, well, how are we going to drink and how are we going to eat and how are we going to take care of our livestock? And fear came and knocked on their door again. And they became afraid and they, they wanted to go back. They wanted to, to go back to the bondage because at least in bondage, they had a little bit of security. And, but God sent them manna. And he sent them quail, and he provided a rock that followed them through their travels in the desert that provided the clearest, crystal, clear water that they could drink. And that was good. And the food was so healthy that he provided them that none of them got sick. They didn't need any doctors. They were completely taken care of. But then fear set in because nothing was changing. It was the same thing every day. Now, I want you to think about this, because I like to eat. And for, I got a lot of women here today. How would you like to cook for your family every day, and all you have is flour? Well, what am I going to make today? I got manna. Uh, let's see, I could grind it up, and I could mix it 
a little differently. Maybe I can throw a little dirt in it. I don't know. What am I going to mix it with? For 40 years, they ate the same thing. I could, you know, I'm honest. And I bet you if I asked you the question, if you had chicken this afternoon and chicken on Tuesday and your wife made it or you made it on Thursday, wouldn't somebody say, what are you doing? We've had chicken twice this week. Why are we having it again? But now, look at the principle, 40 years, the same thing. Now, I'm prefacing this because when Moses sent 12 leaders of the 12 tribes into the promised land, God was going to send back something of an earnest of the inheritance that he promised them. It says they wandered in the promised land for 40 days, one day for every year that they were in the wilderness. And they, they saw that the land was rich. It had something they hadn't had in 40 years. Some of their children, some people never even had a grape. Can you imagine that? These 12 spies come back walking out and they've got this great big pole, one cluster of grapes and two people need to carry it on one pole. And they come back. Can you see the look on their face when, the, when they take, someone takes the grape off of it and they stick it in their mouth 40 years without any fruit? Ah. You probably probably just held it there, the juice stimulating their, their taste buds. It was like heaven. Everyone was excited about the fruit. But then fear knocked on the door. And fear started to say, yes, the fruit's good. And yes, there's lots of it for all of you. But you're going to have to do something to get it. And the ten spies brought back an evil report, and they said, guess what? There are giants in the land, and they're huge, and they have fortified cities. For 40 years, they had not fought one battle. They'd become so complacent that they felt that they shouldn't have to fight ever. They were so used to receiving blessings all the time without extending any energy that they expected God to continue to do that. But God says, no, if you want to inherit promise, you're going to have to overcome the inhabitants that try to keep you from enjoying the blessings. That there's going to be a fight to fight. It's going to be the good fight of faith. But don't be afraid because I'll go ahead of you and I'll fight for you. Let's, let's just read these verses since um, Brother Matucci's got them up there. 32 to 38. And they brought up an evil report of the land which... They had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, a land of all the people that... I can't see the whole verse there. And I didn't write it down here. And they wrote it, that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. 
In other words, how are we going to do this? And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were all, we were our own, in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight as well. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we, God, that we would have died in, in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in the wilderness? And therefore, and wherefore hath the Lord brought us into the land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? So what's happening here is they're saying, forget the fruit. Look at the things that we have to do to inherit the promises of God. Now, I'm going to start today. God has given or sent back from heaven, like those ten spies have come back, he has sent back fruits of the place we're going. Now, this morning, I'm not talking about a land of Palestine. I'm talking about a new Jerusalem. I'm talking about a heavenly city. Because God promised me, Brother Imel, he was going to bring me out of Egypt and he was going to take me to a new place. And yes, sometimes in the wilderness, it gets a little mundane here. You know, it seems like it's the same thing every day, every day. But God, as we've come near to promise now, has sent something from heaven, the Holy Spirit, for instance, and we've tasted of the fruit of the Holy Ghost. And it is great. And it, it revives my spirit and it encourages me. But I need to realize that if I'm going to enter in to promise, I'm going to have to fight the inhabitants that want to keep me from it. And the biggest one is the inhabitant of fear. I want to, <laughs> I tried to think of a name for this Brother Hickey, and I, I thought, what could I call this message this morning? And I thought, don't forget the grapes. And I thought I was going to tell Russ Cordell to maybe put it on the sign, but if they put that on the sign for the message this morning, they'd think, what are they making? But never lose sight of the grapes. The grapes are uh, earnest of your inheritance. And like I'd mentioned, throughout your journey here on earth, God's going to give you fruits, evidences of the place that you're going. They're little grapes or clusters of promise. In heaven, there's no death nor dying. There's no pain in heaven. There's no suffering in heaven. There's no night in heaven. And nothing evil enters in to that place. That's the land to which we journey. In that land, there's no sorrow. There's no disappointment. Every time I speak in tongues, 
or I experience a, a divine miracle of healing or, or deliverance. It's a little reminder of the fruit that's in heaven. It's sent to me to help me to go on and live without fear. It has been said, and I heard this quote, and I, I had to go on the internet and find it again. I'd forgot it. It says, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to act in spite of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Some people say, well, why am I afraid? Why is there fear in my life? God never gave me a spirit of fear. Well, guess what? There are giants around us trying to keep us from enjoying what blessings that God has provided for us along the way. <clears throat> Heaven is the inheritance given to the conquerors of complacency and overcomers of fear. That's my quote. Heaven is the inheritance given to the conquerors of complacency and overcomers of fear. Brother Kylie, it seems like the church is stagnant. It's the same thing. Nothing's moving on. Well, where did I hear that from before? Moses, it's the same stuff over and over again. The same bread, the same water, no rain. The sun's out every day. Not any of us are sick. When are we going to get sick? That's how foolish it sounds. But here we are, and, and Paul's speaking in Romans 8. <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 18. And this is, by the way, this is one of my favorite chapters, Romans 8. Consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, are worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that, in cre that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now notice verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the transformation of mortality to immortality, from corruption to incorruption. For in this hope we're saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. And then the sister verse to that is Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And verse 1, well, what is faith? And how does faith relate to hope? Verse 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for 
and assurance of what we do not see. That is what the ancients were commended for. In other words, faith in the King James is, faith is a substance of things not seen, the evidence of things hoped for. In other words, faith isn't built on visible, touchable things. It's built on the invisible things of the future. Faith is a substance of things hoped for. And I can't please God, and the Bible says that, without faith it's impossible to please God, without faith in what I have not yet experienced or yet visited, I'll never please God. Because I do not live by sight. I don't live by touch. I don't live by my five senses in the spiritual walk that God's called me on. People in the world that have the absence of the Spirit, and we talked about that uh, in one of my last messages, operate by their five senses. That's all they have. But the Bible says we don't as Christians we walk by faith, and the Spirit guides our steps. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Well, if I'm being led by God's Spirit, God is invisible, I can't see who's leading me, but I know that the Spirit is taking me through circumstances, over mountaintops, through valleys, over streams. And when I say that, I'm saying through problems, through death, through hunger, destitution, through pain, the loss of all things, even though the Spirit's leading me, my faith says, I'm following God. And as long as I follow God, I will get to my destination. Everybody loves Tennessee, but guess what? You gotta drive through Illinois to get there. And it goes, and that's bad. You got Iowa and Nebraska if you're going to the Rocky Mountain High. And it goes for, when does this end? I'm sorry. We're just truly blessed to live in Wisconsin, that's all. I want to um, talk about one patriarch that is probably, matter of fact, Jesus gives him a compliment that he probably never gave any other man as quite a good a compliment. That's John, John the Baptist, as we call him, or John. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said that of all women, that of all men that had been born of women, none were greater than John. Wow, that's quite a compliment. But he, of course, you know the rest of the verse says, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. But what he's saying there is, if you have the earnest of your inheritance, in other words, if you're already eating the grapes from heaven, John died on this side of the Jordan. We, as the children of God, have received an earnest of our inheritance already through the Holy Spirit. We're already eating of the grapes of heaven. But he said, here's a man that's living on the other side of Jordan, and look at his faith. His whole life was dedicated to one message. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locust and honey. He was robed in camel skins. He lived simply 
with one message. This, the story of John used to trouble me a little bit until I began to relate with him a little bit more. Um, what happened with John was he preached again against Herod who had taken his brother's wife. If I remember correctly, he had his brother killed and he took his brother's wife in marriage. Now John, I'm not going to compare him to Donald Trump, but he was not very careful with his words. And he preached against Herod, how he shouldn't have done it. Well, you know, when you start to point out faults, things that are not right, you're going to receive flack. When you preach the truth and stand up for righteousness, especially in 2017, you can look for ramifications. Well, he ended up in jail. It wasn't like the jails that we have here. Any of you ever been to Waukesha County Jail? <laughs> Karen, would you get, write these names down? <laughs> it's not like that. Being, working with the sheriff, yes, I get up there. I have to qualify that. So I get up there to see some of these things. It's nowhere near like that in the time that John was in prison. I don't think there were any windows in the place that they put him in. And I bet you it was just a small, small, dark room and dusty and musky and full of rats and lice and all sorts of things crawling over you that you couldn't see because there wasn't enough light to even see them. But somehow he was able to get a message out in his discouragement. Now remember, he's a man of the field. He didn't live hardly ever inside, and now he's locked in this little room, and there's no light, and he's, he's discouraged. Have you ever been there, by the way? In other words, you're taken from your liberty and freedom of blessing to go where you want to go and do what you want to do, enjoy the sunshine and enjoy the, the, the soft breezes upon your face and then all of a sudden you're removed from what gives you comfort and you're put into a little stifling room and you're imprisoned in fear. I know I'm not speaking to people that don't understand this. I dare say every one of us at one point in our life had a time like that where we were confined and imprisoned in our own thoughts and you begin to question and say, God, where are you? I remember seeing a dove come down from heaven. I saw the miraculous. I felt the anointing of God. I do truly believe with all of my heart that when John stood at the Jordan River, that the Holy Spirit came on him and anointed him and gave him a spiritual unction. He preached under the anointing, and I know that's true because even in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God will move upon the prophets, and then it would lift off. John remembered the anointing and the power and the presence of God, but now it was absent. And he sat in his own room, ta taunted by fear, and started to question, why God? What can I do 
in this little room? What function do I have to the work of God? How can this be right? Did I make a mistake? And he sent, he sent his disciples to, to go to Jesus, and it seems so ludicrous for him to even have asked the question because he was the one that stood on the Jordan and proclaimed to the entire world that this was the Lamb of God which would take away the sins of the world. He was the heralder. He was the person that introduced Jesus. But now he's sending a message. You know what? Are you the one? Or, or should we look for another one? You disappointed in John? No, you're not. Because if you were, you'd be disappointed in yourself. But how did Jesus solve the problem with John? How did he give him the ability to overcome his fear? He sent him a little fruit from heaven to remind him of where he was going. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to John, and I want you to bring this fruit back to him. He needs to have this to encourage him because he knew, Jesus knew, that it would not be long until John the Baptist was beheaded for his testimony. Tell him that the blind see. Tell him that. Tell him that the deaf, that you're seeing the deaf, they're hearing. And tell him the gospel is being preached unto the poor. In other words, tell him that the work of God is still happening. The fruits are still coming forth from heaven. The best thing that can happen to you when you're locked up and God's walking you through the valley of trial and fear, and if you look for it, he'll always send something from heaven to give you encouragement and to lighten your eyes. I was thinking about Elijah this morning. I, I thought about how Elijah was so fervent, just like John the Baptist, fervent for God. He, had, he was sold out and dedicated, even though Ahab and that wicked Jezebel had confined and killed the prophets of God. The church basically had went underground and into caves and was hiding for its life because every day they were afraid that some of Jezebel and Ahab's crew would find them and take their life because it was all about Baal. Intermission for a little bit. I just finished reading a book called The Paradigm written by Jonathan Kahn talking about the relationship between the time of Ahab and Jezebel and our generation. Comparing Ahab and Jezebel to Clinton, the Clintons. Now, that sounds far-fetched. But one of the things that I can't believe they haven't reported on this book because it is. Wow! I can't believe you said that. But anyways, but one of the things that was significant about Baal worship, was, Baal worship was child sacrifice. And how Ahab and Jezebel, their whole mission was to increase Baal worship, Jezebel even more than Ahab, and they promoted child sacrifice. 
And anything that got in their way, they would try to destroy. And if you ever want to read that book, it's quite a book. It's really enlightening. But here is Elijah in the days of these two people that are trying to defraud everything that God has built upon. And Elijah, of course, he goes up there and he prays on, the, on Mount Carmel uh, against, praise to God, I shouldn't say against, with the prophets of Baal and says, let the God that answers with fire be the God that's the God. And we know the story. Baal's, uh, the priest of Baal couldn't do anything, of course. And, God, and Elijah prayed and fire came down. It was a great revival. <laughs> You want to see a service. Oh, there wasn't many Christians there, though. Would you, Ben? You know, we talk smart. We really do. But when push comes to shove and your life is on the line and you know if you show up that your life could be taken that day, you can, you can sit in the comfort and safety of this building this morning and say, oh, I can't believe they didn't do that. But it took a lot of guts and a lot of courage to stand in those days because your life could be taken just like that. Elijah put his life on the line on Mount Carmel. And God didn't let him down. And you know what? When you do the same, God won't let you down either. But you know, it was very disheartening to Elijah because even after all that happened, even after God sent some fruit from heaven. The fire came down from heaven. There was still no revival in the church. Have you ever said, did anybody get it? How could you ever walk out of that place and be the same? You know, a service or something that's happened. So Elijah sees all this happen. He kills 500 prophets of Baal. And this is, should have been a great revival, but there's nobody there to keep it going. And then to make matters worse, he's all by himself. And Jezebel sends him a letter and says, if you're not dead by tonight, let it be so unto me. Well, here Elijah is, and I know, hopefully you're going to relate to this. He's tired. He's doing all he can. And, and he feels he's all alone. And, and he goes and he sits underneath, I forget what type of tree it was. I think it was a pomegranate tree. I might be wrong. Are you looking on your phone? Oh, okay, just checking. <laughs> but anyways, he sits under a pomegranate tree. And what does God do? Get up, you lazy bum. You can't stop now. We got things to do. No, he sent an angel down there. And I think the angel just sat with him and said, you know what? I think somebody needs to make supper and you're not able to do it, so I'm going to give you something to eat and drink. And God fed him through the angel and gave him something to drink. And he made the trip from where he was in Samaria all the way down to the area of Sinai. Why did he go back to Sinai, by the way? Why didn't he go down to Jerusalem? Because Sinai is where it all started. 
He went back to where everything in his life started in his relationship with God. He's trying to find or renew his identity again. So he goes all the way down to Mount Sinai where the law was given on the same, probably maybe the same mountain that Moses received the law. And he says, God, where are you? Now, I know you've been there before. God, where are you in all this? Come on, hello. I'm the only guy. And I want to read this here from... Um, uh, what book is that in? I think it's in Numbers. Oh, it's in First Kings, the 19th chapter. And I'm going to start at verse 1 of First Kings 19. <clears throat> Look at the story. I'll just read it real quickly. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he, by, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under... Oh, I was wrong. <sighs> a boom, a broom tree. I'd have never guessed that. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than any of my fathers. Than my fathers. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Rise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. I don't know, that must have been some special food. That's not stuff you'd get from pick and save, I'm sure. He ate that meal and he didn't eat for 40 days because God was giving him the strength and what he needed for the journey, supernaturally. And notice he went to Mount Horeb and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I, I like the way that the scripture tells it the way it is. So he said, let me tell you why. I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets and this, with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Do you see the pronouns there? I, I, me. It's all self-focused. He's, he's focusing on what he's done. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, 
and after the fire, a still small, vo still small voice. Now, when it says the Lord was not in the fire or earthquake, it means that there was no direction. There was no voice. There was no guidance in it. It was after sometimes God sends his power, but you still don't get direction. He was sending these things, parading the power of God before Elijah to show him that it wasn't by Elijah's strength that he's done what he's done. I'm the fire that came down. I'm the wind that blows and breaks in pieces the stones. I'm the thing that shakes the earth. And sometimes even when those things are happening in your life, you may not get the direction that you're seeking. But then, when your soul quiets down, I'll begin to talk to you. And God spoke to him in a still, small voice. I would think that would have been enough for Elijah, but I find, notice what he does. Um, So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, in verse 13, and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, um, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to save, take my life. He said the same thing. He's still focused on himself. What are you focusing on? Are you, are you Elijah at this point? You've been trying to live for God. You're trying to do everything right. You're trying to be everything that God wants you to be. And you're not getting the support that you want. And you're coming to God and saying, listen, I'm the only one left. I'm trying to do everything. I'm very jealous for you, but the rest of the group, they don't get involved. I'm trying to carry the whole world on my shoulders. What's going on? I, 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 me, 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 me. And God's trying to show you that he does things through his power, through his might. And he never addresses you, and you wonder why he doesn't answer your question. He doesn't answer a Moses or a Elijah's question or a statement. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nishai, as king over Israel. And Elijah, the Shaphet of, Shaphet of Abel, Melora, you shall anoint him as prophet in your place. In other words, you know what? There's a change in the guards. I want you to go down, I want you to anoint King Hazel. Then I want you to go down over and anoint Jehu as king over Israel. Ah, this is where the, the paradigm really hit in the story. Jehu comes against Ahab and Jezebel. Do you know, and I am watching the clock. It's really pretty. <laughs> Jehu, if, when you first find Jehu in the scripture, the Bible says he acts like a madman. He said, who's that riding in the chariot? Well, he drives the chariot like that of Jehu. What does that mean? He drives like a nut. You can tell sometimes I don't talk about family. God help me not to talk about my family. 
are some people, you can tell when they've arrived. <laughs> I did good. I really did good. That was hard. But Jehu was a wild man. That's what he was known for. But he still was zealous for right. He hated Jezebel and Ahab. So out of obscurity, this man, Jehu, who doesn't have much support at all, comes and overthrows Jezebel's kingdom. And Ahab has already died by the hands of Azel. And so in the paradigm, uh, Jonathan Kahn says, here we have Donald Trump coming out of his obscurity. He's a madman. Nobody expects him to do anything. And he comes in and he takes a stand to fight against the kingdom that has been established, the kingdom of Baal. In other words, Baal worship really promoted child sacrifice. In these last few generations, abortion in our country has really been promoted. Even the, I'm trying to, partial birth abortion, all these things have really been promoted. The Clintons did more in their lifetime than any other president to promote it. And so the very first thing that Trump does is he takes a stand against that. Jehu, when he came to the kingdom of Ahab, he threw down the altars of Baal. He fought against that worship of, of Baal and the offering of children. Donald Trump comes in and does the same thing. He's a madman. He's a wild man. But he, God uses the wild man. It's really an interesting book. And like I said, I just can't believe that nobody's put it in the paper yet because it's really juicy. But I guess I want to wrap up. I, got, I probably have more information than I needed here, but Brother Kylie, what are you trying to say? What is it that God's put on your heart? Some of you have gone through the mill. And you've, you've went through the mundane where nothing's happened, and even though you're thinking nothing's happening, things are happening all around you. Even in the wilderness every day that the, the manna came and every day that they drank the water, it was a miracle every single day. It was a miracle every single day in the wilderness for 40 years, even though they didn't think there were any miracles, when the cloud followed them and provided protection from the blazing sun during the day and the pillar of fire burnt at night to provide them warmth when it was cold, every day was full of miracles. And you may be saying to yourself, God, where are all the miracles? Well, you know what? Nothing's changed as far as God's concern for you and his care for you. But what's happened is you're starting to focus on your part in the picture. And then God sends you something from heaven and you receive the Holy Ghost. And you taste the fruit. And some people, when they taste the fruit, realize that there's a cost to eating it. If they want to continue it, they don't want to eat it at first because they don't want to get a taste for it. You know, if I, if I have that, I'm going to want more of it. So I don't know. I just don't want to pay the price for it. I had this crazy dream the other night, two nights ago. I was driving truck, and we stopped at a truck stop, and the guy I was driving with said, you can go in there and order anything you want. 
And I looked over the counter, there were ice cream, there was ice cream everywhere. <laughs> I know this is crazy. But there is a point to this. And maybe this is why God gave me the dream. But I looked at all the flavors, and there was Neapolitan without the chocolate. Just the vanilla and the orange. And I said, I want that. And I was so excited when they gave it to me. And when I ate it, it was terrible. I, must, I think I was eating my pillow. But I thought of, of how the world tries to promote things to you and say, you know what, you can have whatever you want. You can, you can have this if you just bow down and worship me or just keep your silence or just do nothing. Just don't do nothing. But God says, you know what, you aren't going to get anything unless you invest something. If you really want to eat the fruit and have it with all abundance, you're going to have to come against Jericho. And you're going to have to come against the Moabites and the Edomites and the Malachites, all the Ikes. You're going to have to fight them. And yeah, you're going to get tired. But remember, I'll always send something along to encourage you. Always send something from heaven. We need it, to, we need it the most. Even when you're at your darkest point and you feel like you can't go on, even when you can't Go on, God sends something to your home where there's an angel that ministers to you and gives you just what you need to go through what you're having to go through so you can make the journey. But don't forget this as I wind it up. The wilderness is not my home. I'm not designed or intended to live on this side of Jordan. My place is in heaven. I'm making the trip and I'm enjoying some of the fruits of the land, but this is just a taste of what's there. This is not my final destination. It is just a stop off. So don't forget the grapes. Remember the grapes and the goodness of God and don't be afraid. I had this one example. I still really have three minutes. I was reading 1 Timothy and Paul, it was the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. And he writes to Timothy, which is his son in, his Lord, in the Lord. Timothy and Paul were like this. Timothy loved Paul their, their ministries uh, worked together, but when Paul was in prison, Timothy was starting to get disheartened. You know, if Paul, his hero, Paul, his mentor, could be put in prison and his life threatened, Timothy living in the area of Ephesus, the cesspool of Asia Minor, the worship of Diana, the, the persecution that was going on in Rome was certainly going on in Ephesus. He feared for his life. If that could happen to Paul, his partner in the ministry, what could happen to him? And Paul knew that he was experiencing fear in Ephesus. And he writes a letter to him. Let's see if I can find that scripture real quick here. Uh, 
2 Timothy 6, verse 7 and 8. We'll let Brother Ron bring that upstairs on the screen. 2 Timothy 6, verse 7 and 8. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to the gospel. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain, may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. I don't think that's the one I was looking for, but it's very good. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. That's what he writes to, writes to Timothy. God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. And then it says in Jude, the first chapter, verse 17, But beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the, before the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, putting them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Remember, fear isn't something that God is giving you as a promise from the promised land. It's the thing that's holding you from the promise. But God's given you power and a sound mind. Let's stand together. Do you think that a person that is afraid has a sound mind? No, he doesn't. But God has given us a sound mind. In other words, the absence of fear. And I, you may have heard me say this before, but I had, I've had my battles with fear. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I know you have too. But I went through a, a trial one time and I said, God, why am I feeling this fear? It's, I shouldn't, I'm a Christian. And the Lord spoke to me, says, what is love based on? It says, perfect love casts out fear. Like the name of Jesus casts out evil spirits, love casts out fear. Can you see the correlation? I says, well, Lord, how do I cast it out with love? And he says, well, what is love built on? What, what is the foundation of love? trust he says your problem is that you are the the foundation of your love is not built on trust if you trust me 
you will not be afraid. So if you're feeling fear, the foundation of your love is not built on what it should be and on trust. And then he said, and I'll close with this, have I ever failed you? Tell me. Tell me when I failed you. And I said, Lord, I, I can't seem to remember any. And he says, what makes you think that I'll fail you now? Lord Jesus, this morning I, I'm thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful that you speak to your people and that we have a hope in you. And I know there are battles that each one of us faces. There are giants in the land all around us. But your strength is made perfect in our weakness. You are glorified through our struggles because you shine forth in our struggles. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.